welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Amanda Redfern. Today, there's not, we're not going to review any medical knowledge, like at all, today. Um, so I guess we don't need that other disclaimer, huh? Yeah, exactly. No, no other disclaimers today. We are going to talk about the general structure of oral boards. Amanda and I recently took our own um, on, on different dates, but we took our own. And I think we both thought it'd be nice to reflect back on how they went and how we studied and hopefully share those things with you guys. Just as a note, I guess there is one disclaimer. We do not in any way represent the American Board of Ophthalmology, and this is not their official uh, structure or take on the oral boards. This is our experiences from taking it ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And we're not going to talk about any specific experiences from our actual exams because I think that's like a felony or something. We're, we're only going to talk about like logistic generalities so people know what to expect from a structural perspective. And that information we obtained strictly from the ABO website. So this is all stuff that's like publicly available. Let's start with what the general format looks like, just so you know, like conceptually what to expect on the actual day of the exam. So there are three basic exams that cover different topics. Each exam is a paired subject area with two different examiners. So the first subject or one of the subjects is neuro and posterior segment, which is essentially neuro and retina. Then the next topic is pediatrics and external disease. And then the last topic is anterior segment and optics. Now this can, this order can shift depending on um, your schedule for the exam, but it's those three basic uh, topics or stations. Yeah. And then each exam, like each of those three sections is 50 minutes long. And during those 50 minutes, you have to get through 14 cases. Uh, and we'll talk about timing, which is one of the most difficult parts later. But you know, you need to know conceptually how many cases you're going through. So as a result, the whole day is about four hours. The people who are going to be examining you are all board certified ophthalmologists. And there's actually extensive training involved with this. So you may even see someone training to do the oral boards during your test day. That means someone might be shadowing with the more experienced test giver. These people are not paid. It's purely volunteer. So both Amanda and I took our boards by Zoom. This is kind of a a historic thing because... Up to that point, everyone had to fly to Chicago and take their boards in this hotel in Chicago. You like go from hotel room to hotel room to take the test. Uh, what did you think about the Zoom experience, Amanda? I liked it because the thought of, okay, I'm cheap. So the thought of paying money to travel to take this test and stay in a hotel is just awful. Yeah, um, that's this. I think it adds a layer. So it takes away the stress of, being in this awkward situation where you're doing this test in someone's room, but it adds the stress of what if something goes wrong technologically, which happened to um, a fellow test taker on my day and it happened to one of my friends as well. Yeah. So I think for my, my impression of the reports of people this has happened to is that the ABO is like very understanding and we'll try, you know, to work with you through technical issues. But, you know, if you can, make your setup as tech proof as possible. Like if your home doesn't have reliable internet, maybe take it where your eye center is or something like that. 
is the best. And something that I didn't think of is kind of pre-prepping my test area. You know, you have they they do a thing, you know, where you kind of do a sweep of the room with your webcam to make sure that there's nothing, um, you know, like no notes on your table or, or textbooks or anything. That part wasn't a problem, but I forgot that I had, because I'm a huge nerd on, on my my wall behind my, like in my office behind my webcam, I have like this picture of an eye. It's like an old school, like schematic, you know, like like in like 1800s wow. fashion. But there's like, <laughs> there's like sketches like the vortex veins and the cord and stuff on it. So I had to like kind of pry that off the wall and like hide it under my bed. Uh, during the test day, which is, you know, like it was just something I wish I had thought of before. So think of little things like that. Definitely make sure you have the right charger for your computer. That is something that came up and was a source of stress for someone. And so you definitely want to have that handy. Yeah. Overall, I thought, like, I agree with you. Like, I thought the Zoom was super smooth. If I had a choice, I would always do a test like this by Zoom. So, like, overall, it was, like, I think a, a really nice experience. Just these are, I you know, think that we both, things that we both saw that, that could cause stress. And trust us, the thing is stressful enough. You don't want to add anything else to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, case structure. So, again, the, the whole thing is they go through 14 cases in 50 minutes. So, in general, how the cases look is they'll present you a basic case. They'll tell you, like, this is a X-year-old, you know, boy who presents with this problem, and then you, from probably most cases, they'll show you some kind of picture. And then um, broadly, the structure that you're going to go through to review the case are, is one, describe the image. And we'll kind of talk about tips about how to do all these things um, in a bit. Then two, review your differential diagnosis. Three, go through your basic history exam and other evaluations that you would do, like testing, um, ancillary testing. Then four, go through your assessment and plan. And then five, describe how you'd educate the patient on what's happening. Now, Amanda, something that uh, gave me like kind of anxiety before is not knowing exactly how these would go. Like when I studied, I would just kind of run through these five things with every test. But then I was kind of surprised in the day of to find that examiners will interrupt you. Uh, Do you have any comments on that? (laughs) I actually felt like the examiner's interrupting you was they were only doing it to help you yeah Um, and there are different reasons why they might be doing it whether to ask a clarifying question to make sure that you understand what you're saying or that you understand the image or something along those lines sometimes just redirecting you if you're kind of getting off track again there the question was mostly just to help you and then lastly for timekeeping issues if there was something that they felt was adequately covered, but you were droning on, they could um, help you like, redirect and save time. Yeah, I, I remember there was one or two cases where they literally just said, "Let's move on." Like, kind of while I was in the middle of explaining how, like, my plan about a patient, you know, which, which is, I mean, like, spoilers. Like, both Amanda and I passed. It doesn't mean that you fail if they say, "Let's move on." It, it, you know, it probably just means that they were able to give you the marks you need on that test, or, you know, maybe that you just clearly didn't get the answer that you need to move on, but it's not necessarily a negative. They tell you that. So it's not negative. It feels weird, but not a negative. And remember that they're really trying to guide you along through the process and they're on your side. So I think time is a stressful thing and having them doing the timekeeping for you. So you don't have to worry about that while you're trying to do the test is nice. Yeah. But that being said, you should be practicing so that time isn't an issue. They can only help so much. You've got to be able to hold your own. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a nice transition to our second half of what we want to talk about with this episode, which are uh, general tips on how to prepare for the oral boards. So we have a few points. One is, so let's start with like the general structure of how to study. I think, you know, there's two obvious ways to, to do these. One is to do it by yourself. And then another is to do it in a group. I think, Amanda, we both did like, you know, some solo studying and some kind of group studying. What did you, how did you feel about those two different styles? I liked the group studying, um, one, because it's accountability. Two, because you got to practice saying things out loud and you got to get used to what it feels like, you know, to have someone on the other end judging you, which in my case were my friends, but still no one really wants to sound like an idiot in front of their friends. Yeah. So <laughs> having that extra pressure and then having that feedback where they can, for me, time was always an issue. So they could help me say, you know, I noticed that you always do X, Y, or Z and you really don't need to do that. Yeah. That can help you with your timing. Um, yeah. So having that kind of feedback was very helpful. Solo studying was also important because at the end of the day, it's a test. You just need to cram that information in and it's not up to your friends to teach you that information. So to some extent, you need to do some solo studying, but I would definitely recommend at least doing some sessions with friends, colleagues, whatever. Yeah, definitely. Like I think the bare minimums to studying are that you have to do it out loud. Like you know, it's so easy to just look at the book and say like, oh yeah, I would have gotten that. But if you don't say things out loud, you won't be able to do the second critical thing, which is time yourself. So I think if you can do it out loud and you can time yourself, that's like, you have to do that to be able to do well in this test. And then I, I totally agree with Amanda that, you know, the other things I think, like doing at least a couple sessions with a group, like you, with like one or two friends, I honestly probably wouldn't go much beyond two people like to do it with because I think then it mm-hmm. gets, like there's too much downtime for you to like, you know, just kind of chill there and listen. So I probably would max out your group at three. But, you know, I'd say I did most of my studying solo and I think it worked fine. But doing like a couple sessions in the beginning with a group was really helpful to like get the rhythm and know like, oh, where like am I constantly making mistakes? And doing a couple sessions closer to the end, I think was helpful too to like, you know, see kind of where I've ended up and what I have to really focus on in the last month. And speaking of timing, how far ahead do you, or maybe maybe we should say like how far away ahead did did you actually study and how far ahead of the test did you wish you had studied? <laughs> I don't think I would change anything. So my I started studying in about three months yeah. before, and it was initially just once a week. I would meet on Zoom with friends, colleagues, and we would put like an hour, hour and a half aside every Sunday morning to go through cases in the beginning. And I really like that because it kind of got me in the mode of it. But definitely towards the end when the panic sinks sinks in, um, I was pretty much studying daily with or without friends for at least the two weeks leading up to the test. Yeah. Yeah, I think I did something similar. It was probably I started three to four months ahead and then also, you know, like really ramped it up towards the end. I mean, you know, there was, so like when I remember, you know, I was studying while I'm still a Retina Fellow and studying when I was a Retina Fellow. What is on call? I definitely missed studying those weeks. But then, you know, the other weeks, I I think I, I got studying like maybe once a week or so on, on weekends. I think as a general rule, 
to know how much time you need to study, you should see how long it would take you to get through one or two oral review books and then uh, space things out so you can go through those one or two books and be done uh, a month before your actual test so you can review the things that you know you really need to hammer in in that last month. So I think you know both Amanda and I took about you know maybe like a month a book or something like you know we had two months we both got through two books. So uh, speaking of books, we are not going to list specific books on this podcast, but well, I guess is there more to say about I them? I think there might actually be a list of resources on the ABO website. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, you can ask the people in your residency like what books you recommend. There's a number of books out there, you know. So. Again, you know, I went through two books completely, and then I used a third one as to kind of help me review things, give another perspective at the end. Uh, Amanda, did you do something similar? Yeah, so I went through the first book, and that was really helpful just to practice the format. Doing the second book was super helpful for realizing that there's more than one way to talk through the case, because each book is going to have their own formula for how they present it. And then realizing that there's a little bit of flexibility and finding a style that works for you is important. The third book that I use was definitely just so I could cram more information in. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, that's, that was exactly my approach too. So my recommendation is definitely get through at least one whole book. You got to get through like the broad range of topics. And like, I definitely at least expose yourself to a second book, even if you don't have the time to get through the whole second book. But if you can get through two whole books, I think that'll really set you up well to, to get those uh, two perspectives, like, like Amanda pointed out. But yeah, I think th- there, there are many books. And after having gone through a couple, I don't think any specific one is like the must go to Bible. I think the ones that are out there are all quite good. Okay, okay. Let's let's get let's come back to the timing thing that we brought up earlier. Oh gosh, so, I was about to, to take out my calculator and do the the actual do the math. math. Here. Yeah, so the actual math I did I did before uh, while we were off the air is about three and a half minutes to get fourteen cases in the fifty minutes. But you got to remember that you're going to get interrupted during these. You're going to be asked questions, clarifying things. So what I think how I practiced it was. I wanted to get through a whole case with, you know, without interruptions, be able to go through those five things that we mentioned before in two minutes. I think it's how I practiced it because you're like during the actual thing, you're going to have time to think. They're going to show you an oddball, et cetera. But if you can get through a whole case in two minutes, then you'll definitely be okay. Like that means you'll, you're able to go through the rote memorization. Like, okay, here's the difference I need to say for like a myopic shift. And then here's like the workup that you need to do for that myopic shift or whatever. Then, then you're good. But do you have any thoughts on that, Amanda? You are so much better than me. I have no, never what? been accused of being succinct. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Uh, my goal was just to keep it in the three to three and a half minute range, knowing that some cases are going to be easier and you're going to whip through those fast, like the two minute case that you're talking about. And some of them are going to be harder or catch you off guard. And that's going to take you a little bit longer. But... I I definitely was not shooting for two minutes because I don't think I could still do that. Yeah, no, I I, I want to be clear. I I would not be able to go through any of these things in two minutes at this point. But you know, it. Uh, uh, but yeah, so maybe somewhere between two to two three and a half minutes. But you should definitely time yourself because 
I remember in the beginning, you know, it would take me like six minutes to get through one of these things, which I, and I thought it was moving at light speed, you know, but then I looked at the timer. I was like, holy crap, you got to like, it's going to be a lot faster. And to me, that was the hardest part about studying for aura boards. Cause you know, you've already in theory, if you're taking it, you've already, you know, done all the rote memorization you need to do because you passed your written boards, but it's about being able to kind of hammer that knowledge into going through a whole case that I think was the hardest part. You know, not just this, you know, getting a question stem and knowing like, ah, it's a lock cell one gene or whatever, you know, being able to put it all together to to take someone through pseudox glaucoma or whatever the prompt might be. I don't know if this is terrible advice, but I decided to forego any reference to any specific genes. Yeah. Differentials. <laughs> it, 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 that, that's an extremely bad example because you do not need to <laughs> genes. I, I can't think of any of them that like... Uh, you know, that kind of memorization is necessary. But it's more like the memorization, I think, of the differentials. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was the thing that took the most time for me is, you know, like they show you like uh, congenital ptosis or something. Again, I'm speaking generalities, but and then like taking the time to try to remember what the differential is for congenital ptosis, you know, um, especially someone who's not actively practicing peds or plastics. That takes a while. And being able to do that for all the, you know, 100 topics we have to know um, is what takes the most time, I think, to study. When I didn't have a lot of time to study, but I was in clinic with my co-fellow, sometimes between patients, we would give each other a topic and ask the other one to give us the differential. Yeah. And then we would edit, um, give feedback on that. And that was a quick way of studying with someone that was very informal and on the fly. Yeah. I think that's, if you have someone like that, that's, that's great. What I did, and at least, you know, when I was uh, in, the, in the clinic and stuff is, when I would go through these things, there'd be like, oh, I always forget, you know, that AMD can cause a bullseye maculopathy. If like the, the case is bullseye maculopathy, I don't, the, as an example, then I would try to make flashcards of the things that I know that I would frequently forget so that I could review those in that last month, like over and over so that I wouldn't forget those things that I, those things on a differential or management. What about reviewing things like BCSC? Amanda, how much did you go back to those books to study for oral boards? Not very much, just because the depth on the BCSC was a little bit more than what I felt I needed for the oral boards. That being said, I'm trying to think if I ever cracked it open. It was fairly rare that I cracked it open. It would be mostly for topics that I reviewed in a, I was going through in a review book and it was talking about something I really should have known better. Yeah. Um, like understanding night myopia or something like that. Yeah. I think the only time you should crack it open is if you feel like you never really learned some like concept well, you know? Like I think come back congenital ptosis, I don't think I like really understood that well when I was like taking written boards. So then I I think I reviewed like a couple plastics things because those are what I was weaker at. Um, but otherwise, I don't think you, if you feel like you had a general understanding of everything, I think you could never open BCSC and do great on your oral boards. So And I would commend you for that, for having that great foundation. If you never needed to open BCSC because you already mastered it the first time around with the uh, written boards, yeah. good for you. Yeah. You know, I think but it's... But I feel like I could always open it up and learn something. Yeah, yeah. And I think hopefully we all can. Like, you know, again, I'll, total, I'll, totally unrelated, but like as a retina fellow, I'll open up the retina BCSC and I'll still learn things from it. I think there's great things to learn. But I don't think at least for oral boards that you 
like, you know, it's not like you're going to go back there and then review all the peripheral retinal pathologies that do cause retinal breaks and the ones that don't. Like these like super fine details like, oh, do meridonial folds cause retinal breaks or whatever. But I think if you like conceptually didn't get something like on a conceptual level, like what is night myopia as an example, then it's good to go back and like try to understand things conceptually, not to like memorize things, but to understand things. Okay. I don't want to forget this because like the the biggest thing that I regret about studying for oral boards is I didn't look at a sample oral exam before I started 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 studying to know what the actual format and like depth of information you need to know early on. I was just guessing, like I remember I think we did one early session that made it together and we I remember we spent like half the time kind of arguing like, oh, how much do you actually need to know, how much do you actually need to say, etc. And then if we had just like watched this like five minute video on the, the official ABO website, like I would think it would have saved us a ton of time. I don't know what you think. Yeah, it also terrified me because that uh, example they gave, she was good. And yeah, I was she's like, oh my gosh, I'll never be at that level. Yeah, that off the wall just is But very, you need right? that motivation. Yeah, and I, I really liked those videos too because they, they do a really nice job of going through and reviewing like what the candidate did well or what they didn't do well so that you know like what they're actually looking for. So that's like the, that's how I would start the whole, your whole study process. Just know what it actually looks like. Otherwise, you're going to go by hearsay and be like, oh, well, this person told me that they never ask you questions or this person told me like that they never lead you or whatever. So now what about courses? You know, there are, I think that's something yeah. that, that comes up a lot. Like there are these paid courses that usually are not specifically from your residency or whatnot, study for aura boards. Uh, did you do one, Amanda? And what did you think? You know, funny enough, I didn't because all throughout my medical training, I've always paid for courses or other help. But in this case, I did not, and I decided to go at it just with a plan we've discussed. I do have a friend and other acquaintances that I know of who took these courses, and they felt like they were helpful and they had no regrets about taking the courses. They can be a little bit pricey, like up to $1,000 a course currently, who knows, with inflation. So it's kind of what is your comfort level and do you need that structure to help you? That would be another consideration because that was, in general, in my experience, taking courses has been most helpful in giving me structure for studying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't take one either. So, but I do know a lot of people who did and like really thought it was worth it because, you know, I think ultimately, you know, the test costs a lot of money. And if you can prevent yourself from having to retake it, that might be a good investment. So. Um, okay, let's finish up by talking about if we have any tips about actually going through each of the five sections that, that in general that you would do for cases. And I'll, I'll just say one thing that this isn't a rule that you go through all these five things in each case. Like there's some kind of random optics one where you might not need to describe an image or something. But in general, for most of your cases, you'll have to do these things. So what about in, with describing the image? Do you have any general tips on how to do this? If it is obvious what it is an image of, i.e. external photograph, you may not need to say this is an external photograph of the left eye every single time. Just cut to the chase of, you know, the pertinent positives and pertinent negatives in that photo. Yeah, That was one place where I lost time and eventually someone came in and guided me like that it wasn't necessary to identify the obvious. Yeah. For images where it's not as obvious as that, you you should definitely clarify what you're seeing and what you're interpreting. 
Yeah, they, they specifically told us actually, like it was kind of weird. It was like during the intro to our test to that we didn't have to go through all this. Like, you know, I think how they, they train us is say, like, you know, this is a color fundus photo of the left eye centered on the optic nerve or whatever. And they were like, just just tell us what it is. So yeah, you know, you should be able to do that, you know, but I, I agreed. Um in our test, and again, look at the the sample exam. Um we I they did it did not encourage us to do all that stuff. Um, another thing that I'll point out is I would in general recommend being broad in your description, especially early on, you know, you get an image, especially if you're not a hundred percent sure what it is from the get-go. I wouldn't use very specific terms to, to describe it. Like this is not something on my test, but if you see something, you said, oh, it looks like Peau d'Orange for the, like on this fundus photo, then that leaves you really open to being asked all about like, oh, what does Peau d'Orange mean? Like, what does that imply with the image? And then like really kind of hems yourself into a corner in terms of your differential diagnosis. So if instead you say like there are like RP, you know, changes or there's like pigment changes in this, in this macula, then that might give you a little more time to kind of think about it. And, and it could not be potorage at all. So so that's my recommendation is to be kind of broad, especially as you start describing your image. That was definitely an example given by someone who's a retina specialist. That's a very anyways. <laughs> <laughs> anyways. My go-to is always like there is an RPE irregularity. Like, there are pigmentary changes. <laughs> there are changes in this photo. Some are pathologic and some are not. Oh, okay. Good. Um, with your differential diagnosis, it's important to cover two basic categories, the things that are most likely and the things that you can't miss that might uh, blind or kill someone. So that's what you really need to be focusing on, because to some extent, it's great to have a long differential of everything it could be, but you're wasting time if you're giving 20 things on a differential. And actually, that's a point that I was losing a lot and my uh, friends gave feedback because I wanted to get everything on the list so I would say something and be like uh and uh and uh and like keep adding to it yeah. and it could be tuberculosis and it could be lymphoma and it, yeah. Yeah. But like yeah and yeah. it could be sarcoid and it could be Bartonella and it could be you know like yeah goes on and on and you just lose time so really focus on the things that are most likely and the things you absolutely can't miss yeah, yeah. But I'd say like three to four max is almost always fine for your differential. That will guide the next section, which then becomes your history. Like, what are you going to ask about specifically? Because you don't want to sit there and ask every single question that also eats time. So yeah. Being very pertinent in your history. And that comes from a very pointed differential. Yeah. And then, you know, I think the big thing is, like, you know, not killing or blinding a patient. That's really the goal of the ABO, right? The, of um, the board certification is to make sure that you're a safe person who will practice. So I think that that's probably what the biggest emphasis should be on. And then for the assessment and plan, I think for the plan, the biggest tip is to not go to surgery first, basically like start with your most conservative available therapy. So if someone has like keratoconus, basically don't jump to like, oh yeah, I do a PK like right away, you know, uh, like, you know, there, there are things that can be done or considered at least earlier on. Like ultimately a patient might need a PK, but, um, you know, that, that can raise like red flags too. If you're like operating too quickly or doing something that's radical, like, you know, oh, I'll just enucleate, like, well, well, let's like think about this, you know, before you enucleate. Yeah. And if you're jumping to a surgical step, give parameters 
about I would be doing this for X, Y, and Z. Like failure to improve with this measure or if there was, I mean, it's hard to say without any specific examples, but always have parameters for why you're jumping to surgery. And I think that's all the tips we have. Anything else you want to mention, Amanda? Um, it is probably the most anxiety-provoking test I ever took. And it feels terrible afterwards. Like, everybody feels like they fail afterwards. Well, 100%. Well, most people felt like they failed afterwards. But just know that the odds are in your favor. And I, I kind of laughed when they they do the intro and they tell you that they're on your side and this is a rite of passage and we're really excited to welcome you into our society with this test. And it was like, yeah, yeah, it's a test, man. Yeah. But there is actually a cool sense of pride once you get through to the other side and you feel like you're part of this group of ophthalmologists who really care about the quality of care you're giving to your patients and, the value on that knowledge and I guess, okay, so this is just way warm and fuzzy, but yeah, I think uh, I wouldn't roll your eyes at it. I think it's very sincere what the goal of this test is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, it's easy to say now that was all worth it, you know, (laughs) you know, in the moment I was like, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, I think, yeah, it is obviously we we are both feeling great about it because we're done, but I, you know, I, I do feel that way now for sure, but it's very normal to not feel that way while you're studying. And, you know, especially like right after the test, I 100% was like, well, I got to start saving up for my next one, you know, because that one did not, I did not pass. Um, yeah. Yeah. I definitely perseverated on the ones that I bombed. And sometimes there are, just so you know, sometimes there are moments where you're like, I'm sorry, I got to move on. I, I, I'm just stuck. You're allowed to just not get some and like, you know, just try to get as many as you can and hopefully it works out. Good luck. Yeah. Amanda and I will be working on more episodes that are specifically oriented to oral exam prep. So look for those in the coming months and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.